Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Corey, we're at a point where we've got a lot of content now. You've taught me about a lot in regards to Collapse, and I know we're only just getting started. But this is now episode 29, and you recently mentioned to me that you decided to go back and listen all the way through the episodes that we've done up to this point. And I'm just curious what your thoughts have been as you've done that. Yeah, so this week I just started back over from the beginning, and I'm only to episode 14 or 15, and I'm surprised at how much stuff there is that I've forgotten. Like, I'll start talking about something, or you'll ask a question, and I'm like, yeah, what is the answer to that? Or just like, what, what, I don't remember what I said here. And it just surprises me how much there is to collapse and how much there is that we still haven't really talked about. It's also interesting to me how much all the episodes intertwine. Like we could probably link any episode to another episode in some way because there's just so much to it. And each episode that we do ends up tying back to those original first eight or so episodes that we started with. So if you're still new to the concept, and if you ever have sort of questions or something still might be a little foggy, I do encourage you to go back and listen to at least those first eight or revisit some of the other ones just to make sure you stay caught up. So this episode is going to be on our dying oceans. You know, for how big of a deal our oceans are, it's pretty crazy how little we really hear about it in mainstream news or even in conversations around climate change. Most of the conversations are about weather that affects us, you know, directly or the poles and melting ice. But the truth is the oceans are dying and that has huge consequences for us and will, of course, result in worsening climate change. You know, we mentioned in a past episode that it's projected that by 2048, the oceans will no longer carry fish for us to consume. And that is crazy. That is really so soon. We're talking about 27 years from now. So a loss of that biodiversity, those ecosystems, marine life is a huge consequence of dying oceans. You know, oceans are also a carbon sink. So eventually the amount of CO2 that the oceans are absorbing is going to diminish, which will result in a much quicker accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which we're already increasing carbon dioxide at an insane rate. So losing the sink of the oceans is a big deal as well. And then lastly, Dying oceans can actually result in a diminishing supply of oxygen for the Earth. And while that's not something that we're necessarily concerned about in our lifetimes, that does have a huge impact on future generations to come. So we'll talk more about those consequences here as we get into it. But first, let's talk about maybe a few of the reasons why the oceans are dying. We can kind of pick those apart. The main ones are overfishing, temperature changes in the ocean, 
increased acidification of the oceans as well as what's called eutrophication, which is a result of wastewater runoff and agricultural runoff into the oceans, creating dead zones. I'm learning that there's so much to talk about here. You and I, for this episode, Corey, have kind of split up the different aspects of what's happening to our oceans and what's to come. And as I did my research on my portion of this topic, it became clear to me that you could probably study for an entire lifetime and still have more to learn just on the complex system that our ocean is. So one thing that was especially interesting to me is to learn that as climate change is happening and as the planet is heating up, our oceans absorb a lot of that heat. There was a report published in 2013 by the IPCC, which by the way, I didn't know what that was before, but it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that report states that since the 1970s, the ocean, at least up to that point, had absorbed more than 93% of excess heat from greenhouse gas emissions. And along those same lines, if the same amount of heat that has gone into the top 2,000 meters of the ocean between 1955 and 2010 had gone into the lower 10 kilometers of the atmosphere, apparently the Earth would have seen a warming of 36 degrees Celsius, which is something like 97 degrees Fahrenheit. So to me, that's just absolutely insane. All the heat that is being absorbed by the oceans. But one thing that's really important to note with that is that that heat isn't distributed equally. There are certain parts of the globe and certain parts of our oceans that are heating at a much more rapid pace. And it turns out that does some really crazy things. We've talked in the past about continental ice melting and seawater rising. You mentioned a little bit just a moment ago about a reduction in the amount of oxygen in certain parts of the ocean. But one thing that was totally new to me is the effect that the warming of oceans has on our coral reefs. So I honestly didn't know anything about this, but coral is not a plant, it's an animal. And it is extremely sensitive. There's a certain type of algae that grows on our coral reefs that with just a difference of one to two degrees Celsius in water temperature, the coral ejects that algae. It's driven out and it causes this process called coral bleaching. And it's called coral bleaching because when you see coral, right, normally you think of like these bright colors, bright pink or whatever. But after this process of coral bleaching, the coral is literally white. And at that point, the coral's not dead. But if that continues for like eight weeks, then the coral will die. And even if the coral doesn't completely die, it takes decades to recuperate from that. And we're seeing some really crazy things around that. In 2005, half of the coral reefs in the Caribbean experienced this bleaching event in just one year. You know, in other areas, in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, there have been these extreme events that have taken place. And you might think, like, why does that matter? Why do we care? But there's a couple things that coral does. First thing is, people call it the Amazon rainforest of the seas, because coral reefs are home to 25% of the world's marine species. Without those coral reefs, we lose a lot of the marine diversity that we have. But they also protect against coastal erosion. And if you think of a lot of the beaches and the cliffs that you see along the shoreline, the coral reefs play a huge part in keeping those in place. So what you're saying is warming oceans don't just raise sea levels, but as those sea levels rise and the reefs, which protect from erosion, die off, then coastal cities are going to experience more erosion along with rising tides. I'm guessing that hurricanes and storms that come in and churn up the water probably create a lot of havoc on how our shorelines are formed. Absolutely. So it's dangerous to our coastal cities and our coastlines. Obviously, that'll take a long time. 
But you also have to remember that the ocean is one big, somewhat fragile ecosystem, and all these species depend on each other. So as the warming oceans causes a large percentage of our marine life to die, that has an effect on all the rest of our marine life. And when we're talking about marine life, it's not just those that depend on those coral reefs. The EPA had a recent report. They monitored a number of different species in the ocean, and they found that a lot of marine species are migrating, and not just a little bit. So like the American lobster, black sea bass, red hake, they've shifted an average of 109 miles north over the last 32 years. So what's happening to the planet is having a huge effect on all sorts of species within the ocean. Yeah, it's wild. In in doing this research, the th- kind of the theme of it and what kept coming up over and over again was just how interdependent and fragile marine ecosystems are on the littlest of things. So, you know, you mentioned warming oceans is causing problems with coral, it's causing problems with forcing migration, with coastlines, all these different things. And while it's easy to just kind of say them in words, it's hard to describe the chain of events that that can cause in an entire ecosystem. And this part that we're talking about right now is just one part of a lot of what's happening in the oceans. You know, you mentioned the insane amount of heat that the ocean absorbs. And it reminded me of the episode that we did where we talked about latent heat effusion and how all of that heat that's absorbed by the ocean is basically attracted to the coolest parts of the ocean. And so that warm water, as it warms up, is put into the poles. And that's what we're seeing, obviously, with the melting of Arctic ice. And with latent heat effusion, once that ice is melted, then the actual temperature of the surrounding waters increases quite rapidly. And so while we're currently seeing an increase in temperature, once Arctic ice is gone, I expect that we'll see an even more rapid increase in temperature and an exaggeration of the negative effects that we're already seeing. And as you say that, and we talk about all the effects that climate change is having on our oceans, you know, it's easy to think like, oh, just a degree difference here, or a couple degrees there, big deal, right? Fish are resilient. And some are, but some definitely aren't. I had an experience, not this last Christmas, but the one before that. My kids wanted a pet, and we didn't feel like they were ready for a dog or anything like that. So we said, let's go to the pet store and get you some fish. And there was a certain type of fish that they wanted, And we thought, okay, no big deal. We'll just get a fish tank, fill it up with water, drop the fish in there, we'll be fine. But first we asked, okay, these are the fish that they want. What do we need to do to keep these fish alive? And the people at the pet store said, okay, you're going to need this special tank. You'll need to treat the water, you know, to get rid of the chlorine and other chemicals. But then you'll also need to treat the water with this other substance that allows them to grow some sort of microscopic algae on the surface of their skin that protects them from diseases. And in order for that to happen, you need to have this device that sits in your little mini aquarium that keeps the temperature at this exact right degree. And you've got to have this type of filter that allows the water contents to have a certain level of purity. And even after hearing all these things, we thought, okay, we'll do that. We'll buy this and that. We'll make sure they get the fish that they want. And we tried, and those fish died very quickly. We tried again, and they died again, even though we thought we were doing everything right. We eventually just got like a betta fish, which has lasted for months. That's great. But the interdependence of all these different species and how dependent each of them is on just the right temperatures and just the right conditions, it makes me realize that a lot of the species in our oceans are a lot more fragile than we sometimes think. Yeah, I've recently kind of looked into the whole world of hydroponics. I've 
kind of wanted to learn about growing plants in water and same thing. I'm realizing I haven't actually tried it yet, but I'm reading through other people's experiences and researching the requirements and it's the same. They have to have the exact right amount of light and the exact right amount of this nutrient and that nutrient and salinity and acidity and, and all these things. And just being slightly off is enough to either hamper its growth or completely kill it. And it's intimidating. And it's crazy to think that we have an ocean that has evolved over millions of years based on a certain set of conditions. And now we as humans are the ones that are disrupting that. We're causing it to warm. We're causing it to become more acidified, you know, all these issues. And if it were to happen slow enough, then perhaps marine life would adapt to it as it's adapted to many things. But for it to be happening as rapidly as we're causing it to happen is wreaking havoc on the system and in the next couple of decades is likely to pretty much result in the demise of ocean life. And I even forgot to mention that warming ocean temperatures are linked to an increase in the spread of diseases in marine species. So it's just one more factor in the effect that we're having on our marine life. And, you know, just as a side note here, it's amazing to me, again, how little this is talked about and how little people care. (laughs) You know, I've told people, like, did you know that we're going to run out of fish by 2048? And a lot of times I'll get like this reaction of like, oh, are you serious? Really? And then subject change. Like, then I know that person's never thought about it again. We're talking about something that is 70% of the surface of the earth is covered in water, which is filled with marine life. And we're just okay with completely destabilizing that and not considering that that's going to have major consequences for us, let alone the sort of repugnant thought of not caring about all of that biodiversity. I think some of that just comes back to human nature. And it's almost comical to think of what we choose to care about and what we don't. People feel really disconnected from what takes place in the oceans, which makes sense. But if you were to say, you know, all the world's cats and dogs are going to be gone by 2048, there'd be a much stronger emotional response, right? If someone were to say all the spiders and snakes are going to be gone, even though that might totally mess up our whole ecosystem, a lot of people would be excited for that. When you start talking about marine life like dolphins, then people kind of get a soft spot in their heart. But if there's not that emotional connection and people don't feel like it's a direct impact on them, I think it's really challenging to get people to care. Yeah. And I think it's also a question of time too. Like, you know, 2050, whenever you hear that, something in in your mind just naturally kind of goes like, oh, that's still a long ways away. And I've noticed that even in myself when I'm reading a report from the IPCC or something that's just like, oh, 2050, that's still so far away. But then I think about it. That's less time to 2050 than from when I was born in 1990. You know, the next generation will be my age at that point, and I'm not even going to be retired yet. And so I think a lot of people think like, oh, no, I can't eat tuna fish by 2050, you know, big deal. But as it gets closer, I think it's going to hit people a lot harder. And also, we know that everything happens faster than expected. And so I sincerely believe that in the next few years, I'm sure we'll see another report that will move that 2048 date up to 2040 or 2043 or something. And then in a few years, you know, and then by 2035, the fish will be gone and and everyone will be like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? And so it's just super frustrating that people don't care, that they don't pay attention. And it's that way with everything that we're talking about here, right? Financial policy, our economic system, the energy cliff. But I think it's important at the very least that we understand it, that we contemplate the consequences of it, and that we try and get the word out and and help other people understand it as well. So the next big part of this is ocean acidification. Right now, the oceans are absorbing between 30 and 40% of all of the carbon dioxide that we emit. And so it's a huge carbon sink. 
which is great for us because if it hadn't been absorbing all of that, we would certainly be, like Kellen, you said, much warmer than we are now. And we'd be experiencing all those consequences here on the surface. And the way that it works, and I don't need to go through the whole process, but basically, in short, CO2 that goes into the ocean causes an increase in the acidity of the ocean. So on the pH scale, it runs from 0 to 14, and seawater before the Industrial Revolution sat at about 8.25 on that scale. So anything below 7 is acidic, and anything above 7 is alkaline. Seawater is a base, so it's on the alkaline side, again 8.25. But since the Industrial Revolution, it's now at 8.1. So you're probably thinking like, ooh, a 0.15 difference, that doesn't seem like any change at all. But the way that the pH scale works is that it's logarithmic. And so every move upward on the scale by one is actually 10 times the intensity. So if you go from an eight to a seven, you are 10 times more acidic than you were before. So a 0.15 change actually results in a more than 30% increase in the amount of acidity in the oceans, which is very significant, especially because like we've talked about how fragile those ecosystems are, how fragile different organisms and animals are in the ocean. As an example of that, acidification has a huge impact on marine life that requires calcification for things like shells. So shellfish, crustaceans, mollusks, pteropods, corals. Basically what happens is as we increase acidity, it restricts the creation of those shells and can actually start to dissolve them. There was a study done recently that actually showed that by the time the oceans reach just 7.8 on the pH scale, which is projected for around the end of the century, those shells will dissolve completely on pteropods within 45 days. So pteropods are small snails about the size of like a pea, but they're huge in the food chain. So in a month and a half, their shells were completely dissolved and they died off. So they would be impossible to reproduce. And other studies have actually found that pteropods are already being discovered as having their shells dissolving in the seas around Antarctica. So this is something that's already beginning. We don't have to wait until the end of the century when it hits 7.8 to see the consequences of this. It's happening now and it's going to intensify and have an effect on the food chain before then. I think one of the most disturbing trends is that ocean acidification can affect phytoplankton populations, which are basically the base of every food chain in the ocean. They're also responsible for half of the oxygen created on Earth. So a lot of people think of where oxygen comes from when they think of trees, right? Trees and plants and everything on land actually only accounts for half. The other half is just from phytoplankton in the ocean. And many types of phytoplankton require calcification of their exoskeleton as well. And so as we acidify, we're putting at risk the lives of phytoplankton and therefore the creation of oxygen would decrease dramatically as well as, you know, they are also sort of the first rung of the food chain in the oceans. Without phytoplankton, the entire food chain is disrupted and again, most of marine life would die. On top of all of that, if we lose phytoplankton, we're also losing a major carbon sink. You know, phytoplankton, just like plants, take in CO2 and turn it into oxygen. And so that CO2 being stored in phytoplankton without them, not only is that CO2 being released, increasing the acidification of the oceans, it's also less CO2 that can be absorbed into the oceans. And, you know, all these reports from the IPCC talking about where we're at with our parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, which right now is somewhere around 418 and increasing rapidly. They've got projections about where that's supposed to go. And again, something like this happening, loss of phytoplankton or decrease in phytoplankton, 
decreasing the ability for the oceans to take in atmospheric CO2 is going to result in a rapid increase in the amount of CO2, again, much faster than is expected. Now, ocean acidification by itself isn't projected to really wreak havoc until towards the end of the century. But again, because of the combination of all of the things that we've talked about and that we're going to talk about, that's what leads to sort of this projected date of around 2048. And at one point, you taught me about feedback loops. And in what you described just barely, it seems like there are a lot of them. As I was doing my research on today's topic, I saw certain reports, you know, peer-reviewed journal articles making predictions about particular dates and others that were also very well informed, but were predicting very different dates for the same events. And so trying to say exactly when all this will happen, I think is extremely difficult. And to me, I think that is because it is so complex. There's so many factors, so many interdependencies, so many feedback loops. You can't really look at any one thing in isolation. It's one big system in which all the parts are having an effect on each other. So trying to say when that will happen or when this will happen, it feels like a wild guess. But the fact that we're heading that direction and that we're doing so at an accelerated pace should be concerning to everybody. Yeah, and these feedback loops are everywhere in climate science. And a lot of climate scientists have come out and said, all these projections that we've made, all these projections that the IPCC makes, we don't actually take into account many of the feedback loops because we don't know. It's too hard to get a solid number because we don't necessarily know how all these things interact with each other. And that's why I feel so confident in saying and why it's something that we do continually see over and over and over and over again in articles that come out. This is all happening decades faster than expected and sometimes centuries faster than expected. And I expect that trend to continue. And especially when we're talking about a lot of things that are on an exponential scale. We've passed tipping points. We're going to continue passing tipping points. And we kind of roll our eyes every time we see an article that says faster than expected because it's like, duh, we could have told you that. But that being said, no one is in a place to really be able to create an accurate model that can just say this is when this is going to happen. And with that being said, there are a lot of sort of theories out there about more dramatic things that could happen as a result of oceans dying and oceans warming Things from, you know, the clathrate gun hypothesis and diseases and microbes and all sorts of things. We're not going to really touch on those because there's so much that's still unknown about them. It might be something that we explore later on, but for now, we're just kind of focusing on the aspects that at least more is known about. There has been more research on, we can more confidently say, is happening and it's going to happen. So one of those is dead zones. Um, dead zones are an area of the ocean where there's not enough oxygen for marine life to live. It's basically, it's called hypoxia. And while dead zones can happen naturally, they're being most frequently caused now because of humans. And it's through a process I mentioned earlier called eutrophication. And what that is, is nutrient pollution from wastewater and agriculture runoff, basically pushing nitrogen into the ocean, which allows algae to thrive. And so this happens both in oceans, it happens in lakes, it creates algal blooms. People also call them red tides. And so what it does is as the algae's decomposing all that nitrogen, it sucks the oxygen out of the surrounding water and creates a dead zone. So marine life cannot live in these dead zones. Since the 1950s, there's been a 10 times increase in the number of dead zones in the ocean. And currently they think there's somewhere around 700 of them. 
Now, those dead zones make up, you know, less than 1% of the ocean. So it's not this massive problem that's rapidly overtaking the whole thing. But it is another big reason why marine life is dying. And it's something that's specifically being caused by humans. It's very easy to see as most of these are happening around the coast where all this runoff is happening. And it's having a big effect on ecosystems in those areas. So previously, I mentioned the effect that warming has on certain species and marine life in general, you brought in these aspects of acidification and dead zones. And going back to the fact that this is all part of a large, complicated system, there are other factors at play here as well. You know, one thing that's happening as a result of climate change, and we've talked about this before, is just ice melt. That much of the ice on the earth is melting, and that includes, you know, glaciers. And the melting of ice that's taking place is producing a lot of fresh water, which when I first heard that, I thought, awesome. You know, we've talked about concerns regarding our fresh water supply and how limited that is. And my initial thought was, great, let's get as much of this ice melted so we can have way more fresh water. But a lot of that fresh water is just going right into the ocean. And some pretty concerning things happen as all that fresh water makes its way into our oceans. I'm no expert here, but I've learned that there are currents in the North Atlantic that are part of this whole global pattern. Some call it the global ocean conveyor. But the fact is that a lot of the warm water from the equator, because of this process, makes its way north. And we often just think about air temperature when we think about the weather conditions in whatever area we live in. But we don't realize that a huge factor in the temperature and also in the weather is a result of these ocean currents and the fact that they're bringing all this warmth northward. So that warm water makes its way north. As it does, it cools and it sinks lower in the ocean and it kind of gets caught going the other way and comes back toward the center of the earth. Okay, so the reason I mention all of that is because research has shown that as Arctic sea ice is melting and that fresh water gets added to the seawater in the Arctic Ocean, that added fresh water makes the seawater less dense. So the North Atlantic has become fresher over the past several decades. And because it's less dense, it's not able to sink and flow through the deep ocean like it would otherwise. So that's actually making a noticeable change on those ocean currents. It's causing them to slow down. And some scientists estimate that at this current rate, those currents could stop within the next few decades. Which, if that happened it would drop the average temperature of Europe by 5 to 10 degrees Celsius. And that's not just something that's a guess. It actually has happened before, roughly 12,000, between 12 and 13,000 years ago, that circulation of ocean currents did come to a halt, and it did cause the temperature in that region to drop by 5 degrees Celsius, which has a huge effect on what we've talked about already, which is marine life, but also on human life, and particularly because of what that does to our weather patterns. Everything that I've described as barely is kind of a recipe for disaster when we talk about extreme weather events like hurricanes. Yeah, so if you've ever seen the movie Day After Tomorrow... It's basically a dramatized version of what would happen if what Kellen just described took place, which is a slowing of the AMOC. In that movie, it was a complete stopping of the AMOC. Now, it's not going to happen as rapidly and as dramatically as as in the movie, but it's a real threat, and it's really interesting because the AMOC has slowed down. These ocean currents are slowing because the levels of salinity are decreasing. And we're going to do an entire episode on it because it's fascinating And I think it deserves our full attention. And so we'll touch on that one again later. But it is fitting for this episode as well. And I just think it's so interesting when you talk about the consequences of what it would actually mean for our oceans in the future if we were to lose all our marine life, if the AMOC slowed 
or even stopped, if the ocean stopped being a carbon sink and became a carbon source, like these things are huge and cannot be understated. We're talking about beyond all just the climate effects, the direct impacts on humans. We've talked about in the past how many humans rely on seafood for at least a part of their diet. You know, the number of jobs that are reliant on the fishing industry or crabbing or jobs that are reliant on tourism around marine life. We'd be talking about the loss of entire communities because they cannot economically sustain themselves without that tourism. We're talking about indigenous people who rely on marine life for their sole food source. You know, the direct impact on me of not being able to go to the supermarket and buy salmon may not be life or death, but the mass migration of millions or hundreds of millions of people from coastal cities because their sea levels are rising or because their beaches are eroding away or because they're being overwhelmed by the smell of billions of dead fish on their shores. Like these types of things are going to have a direct impact on each of us. To me, it's disgusting to think about, but I can just imagine this future where marine life is gone. And despite all the terrible consequences, I can see Governments and corporations like giving this big sigh of relief because now they finally have a place to dump all their garbage. Like, I can see us not even trying to contain waste anymore now that 70% of the globe's surface is just this humongous, vast, you know, biological desert and just wasted space. You need a place for your garbage or your chemicals or your plastics? No problem. Just dump it in the oceans. I kind of just envision this nasty sludge of brackish, nasty, plastic-filled waves crashing on shore because at some point we've just decided to completely give up on the oceans. And as you say that, it makes me realize we haven't even really touched on the effect that pollution already is having on the oceans. I've read some articles around microplastics and the way that's kind of messing up the whole ecosystem as well. We also haven't gone too deep on our consumption of marine life. And when you look at all the fishing that we're doing, what impact that has. And that people don't realize that when it comes to fishing, each fish that you're eating, much more than just that one fish was impacted to get it on your table. The amount of collateral damage that's happening, you know, the number of sharks that are accidentally captured or killed for each fish that is captured or dolphins or whales, that's huge. Yeah. And what I've seen in doing some of this research is that there are things we can do. There are ways that we can cut back on our seafood consumption. There are ways that we can reduce our pollution. There's obviously ways that we can mitigate the effects of global warming or at least slow it down. But that's highly unlikely. Even when it comes to all those species that are dying because of our warming oceans and the acidification and everything like that, I've I've seen some things around ways that we can boost the resilience of those species through these like assisted breeding techniques. But that alone would require an immense amount of resources. And it takes me back to this whole principle that we've touched on over and over again, which is catabolic collapse, right? That as things get worse, we need more resources to put towards solving those problems, but we have less and less of those resources that we need. So all of this takes me back to you mentioning that you listened to the first 15 or so episodes and were reminded of just how complex collapse is. And every time we do another one of these episodes and we talk about another facet of it, it honestly just blows my mind. Like it is crazy just how many ways we are headed toward that destination. Yeah, I expect by the time we get to like episode 150, episode 200, and we're looking back and every single episode was just another thing that you could look at both independently and completely intertwined with everything else we've talked about. It just gets to a point where you look at it all and you say, there really is nothing we can do, is there? 
this is going to happen. Collapse is real. Yeah, that's what I'm beginning to see. We did our recent episode on the last 18 months or so and just all the ways that we're kind of seeing collapse happening right now. And everything that we've talked about today isn't just hypothetical. It's not just theories about what could happen. The dead zones, the acidification, the slowing ocean currents, the bleached coral reefs, those are all things that are happening already and we're just seeing them accelerate. Exactly. And it's so frustrating for it to be one of those things that we can see it's happening. We care. We're watching it unfold. We have a pretty good idea of what's to come, though we may not know the exact timeline or intensity, but we know it's not good and we know it's coming. And yet nobody seems to care. And as it's unfolding, as it continues to unfold, people will continue to turn a blind eye. People will continue to not care. The people who really matter the ones who can actually make changes, the corporations and governments will continue to not care until it's too late. And it's not even going to feel good to say, I told you so. You know, I just gave this idea in my mind of this future where we are taking advantage of the fact that 70% of the earth is now available to us to throw our trash in. And I'm really not kidding when I say that. Like, I really feel like as long as our current form of capitalism is around, as a collective, people are just going to keep turning away, keep finding reasons to convince themselves that everything is normal and that these are all good things happening. You know, I saw an article recently about how the U.S. military finally came out declaring that there were major disruptions to sea ice in the Arctic Ocean, but that it was a good thing because it meant they were going to be able to have more access to the Arctic Sea, to oil, and for military operations. Like, as long as something has some sort of profitability to it or gives a government a leg up on someone else, then it's a good thing. Yeah, and that's a depressing thought. Obviously, all this is a depressing topic. But whether you just want to make yourself prepared and make sure you're setting yourself and your family and your friends up for the greatest likelihood of success as collapse continues to unfold, or whether you actually recognize there are things that you can do to make an impact and help mitigate the problem and give us more time, whichever of those good things you can do as a result of this information, none of that can or will happen without building awareness, which is why, Corey, I'm really grateful you've introduced me to all of this. You're helping me become more aware so that I can make those kind of decisions. And I'm hoping that for everyone out there listening, this isn't just a source of entertainment to feel some sort of fascination around doom and gloom. I'm hoping that others out there, just like me, are trying to use this information to benefit either themselves or society collectively. So please share the podcast with others so we can continue to build that awareness. If this information is valuable for you, we would love for you to support the podcast, even if it's just a few dollars a month on Patreon, or if it's by leaving a solid review so that the podcast gets some more visibility. And we'll pick up our conversation again next week. As Kellen and I have mentioned before, we typically record these episodes two weeks in advance. And in the last two weeks since recording the episode, we discovered the documentary Seaspiracy, which can be found on Netflix, which has a ton to do with one aspect of our dying oceans, which Kellen and I didn't cover in depth in this episode, which is around overfishing and the consequences of capitalism in fishing. So we do highly recommend checking out that documentary. It's made by the same people who made the Cowspiracy documentary, which we talked about in a previous episode. 
So there are pros and cons. Most things we agree with. There are some things that we don't agree with. But for the most part, it is a great look into the world of overfishing and the harm that we are having by harvesting our oceans in unsustainable ways. Feel free to check out that documentary. And in the future, we'll do an episode on overfishing and perhaps do a review of the Seaspiracy documentary. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.